we're going into Romans chapter number 8, and according to the practice started last week, let's start in the hymn book today. No, I tease <laughs> We're not going to the hymn book today. We're, we're just going to uh, start in Romans chapter number 8. This is a great, great... You know, this is what we've been waiting for. Verse number 38 and 39. Well, there's a lot of verses that we're excited about. But verse 38 and 39. I'm going to talk to you today about three words, basically. I am convinced. Those are powerful, powerful words in our text right now. I am convinced. There are not many passages in this Romans 8 chapter where it talks about our response. Just about all of it is what God has done, right? What he has done, what he has done, what he has done in order to uh, assure us of his great love for us. And there are two phrases that kind of stand up as important. And verse 18 was the first one we came across. For I consider, and now when we get to the very end of the chapter, for I am convinced, and we're going to talk about that today. Heavenly Father, help us with our text. You have it written for us. It's to edify us, and we are in need of that work today. Do you great work in our hearts that shape us to be more like Christ, to have more faith, to come across with that confidence that we're going to read about today. May those be our words. I am convinced. And may it be from a heart that has come to know you thoroughly. Help us today, we pray. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, you got to put on the seatbelts. We're starting in high gear right now. Right? I'm not going to just build up to this. Be ready. Because this has been wanting to be said this entire series, and we're on week 57, or 47 of it already. This is what we should be have, what we should have been saying at the end of every verse. I am convinced of the love of God. I am convinced of the love of God. And that's where we come to at this point. And it's very important that we reach it. Maybe sometimes it takes us a year to get to say it, up to the point where we understand it. But since our theme is the security we have as believers in Christ, the things that God has done for us, all of this chapter has been designed to show you how deeply, how permanently God loves you. That's what the chapter has been showing us. And I wish, as a pastor, and a lot of pastors wish this too, that there was a button or a switch that they could just click on people, you know, to, to say, I'm convinced. 
with what they hear. I just lay before you the Word of God. That's what I am called to do. That's what I like to do. These are not my words that can trigger your heart. It's, it's not what I say. Uh, really, I'm not the author of these things. <laughs> this is what God has said. I could not accomplish this for you anyway. I could not have done this. I could not have initiated God's love for you. I could not have maintained it either. So I don't want you to believe in security because Pastor Bob said so. I want you to believe it because God said so. And that's a much, much greater place to go. You see, as you and I know this, we are limited creatures, aren't we? We're limited in so many ways, and I wish it weren't so, but it's true. We're limited in space, we're limited in time, we're limited in our power, we're limited in our reason and our capabilities. We also know we're limited by sin. We know that's true. Uh, The depraved nature within us, now you may not think yours is depraved. Maybe you do. It's a fitting word, even if you may not... uh, Uh, maybe you have a better opinion of yourself. I just read in Scripture the sinfulness of my heart. I read in Scripture the sinfulness of a mind, of a conscience, of intentions. I read of the sinfulness of actions and motivations and all these things. And I can't help but see it. And I see limitations in so, so many ways. As much as I want to know the Lord and know Him thoroughly as best I possibly can, I've got so many limitations, and there's frustration in that. A simple illustration for you of what we're trying to do at times is this. If you get in your car, even, well, maybe not tomorrow morning, if it's raining, let's hope so. But say it's one of those sunny mornings, and it's about 7 o'clock in the morning, and you get out here on Kiwi, and you're heading east. What are you contending with? That sun is right over the road. And it's right in your face. And you know what one of the challenges is with that? Not only just the sun itself, but if you have a windshield that hasn't been cleaned for a while. Is that possible in Oklahoma? All it takes is dust. Or something like the, the, uh, the, the fog that will build up because it's a cool morning and you're driving and, and your, your um, windshield starts to fog up a little bit. I'm getting louder by the second. Okay. Ah! Okay. That wasn't me. But, but as, you, as you start to enter into that, because of that, the light is reflecting off the dust and the dirt and the debris and the fog and everything else, and it makes it even harder to do it right. And we know that very, very well. Picture, if you will, the, the windshield of your life trying to see and understand God, and it's distorted by limitations, and especially by sin. That makes it hard, doesn't it? Especially as the things that we read of in God's Word shine brighter and brighter and brighter, it reveals more and more and more our limitations. And here, in this, the simple picture of what I'm trying to say is this. Our challenge here is to know God. And that is an incredible challenge for us. 
Because if we're going to talk about the security we have for him, in him, and if we're going to talk about the love he has for us, we need to know him. And unfortunately, our limitations step in there, and they give us some challenges in this, because our limitations are great, and he is a very great God. And put those side by side, our minds are too small, folks. Our minds are too small. Our lives are too short. We get tired. We get confused. We sin. We block our spiritual perception in one way or another. We diminish in our desire to know God. We, that keeps us from His Word. Causes us to do something. And you can check this to see if it's true. But do we not then take the attributes that we know from a limited view and put it upon a God? Let me illustrate. We know theologically that what God has said in His Word is that He is omnipresent. What does that mean? He's everywhere, right? Here's a way of saying it. There isn't a place where he isn't, bad grammar, isn't, but nevertheless, there isn't a place where he isn't. And yet at times, do we not think that he left us? There's a neat little passage in Genesis 28, verse 10, 11, 12, right in that area, with Jacob, you remember Jacob in the Old Testament, he had departed from Beersheba, he was heading toward Haran, and, and he got to a certain place, he spent the night there, out in this wilderness, uh, the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and used it as a pillow, and he went to sleep, and if you know the passage well, you know it's about his dream. We always focus on the dream, you know, the ladder and the whole thing, and we think, wow, that's quite an incredible dream. But what's always intrigued me was his words when he woke up. In verse number 16 of Genesis 28, it says, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How often do we live like that? We say we believe in his omnipresence, and yet we do not know it. We go about as if our limitations of presence is applied to a God who is omnipresent. We do that. We do that with omnipotence too. Omnipotence, what is that? God is all-powerful, right? Simple way. There isn't a time when he is not all-powerful. Think of that. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get sick. He doesn't need the flu shot. Right? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't lay down and go to sleep. He doesn't need a nap to, you know, build up his strength. Because he never slumbers. He never diminishes. This is hard for us sometimes to comprehend because we know limitations. He has none in power. None. But yet we attribute our limitations in power to him. And we ask sometimes, can God do that? Is that too much? Is that impossible? You do that with his om omnipotence. If I brought up the third one, omniscience, you know what that means, right? 
God knows everything. Think of that for a minute. God knows everything. There isn't anything God needs to learn. He knows everything. We can't look five minutes into the future and know what's going to happen. But God always knows. He knows the past as thoroughly as He knows the future. And He knows the present as well. All this we know. And yet sometimes we put our limitations of knowledge on Him, and we feel like we need to inform Him of things going on down here, right? Sometimes our prayers sound like that. Have you ever listened to young prayers? God, we want to tell you about our day. Of course He knows that, and He doesn't mind listening to your day. But Scripture says He already knows what you need before you ask it. But at the same time, we approach Him at times like we need to inform our God of what's happening. Now, I can go on and on on these points, but I just want to take one and make a direct hit to where we are in this chapter. God is love. First John says so. First John 4, verse 8 says so. It's stated with a verb in the Greek, to be, to exist. And what that means is, he's not limited in this. In time, it doesn't say God was love. It doesn't say that God will be love. He is love. That's his existence. And it's never diminished. It never grows. It is. It is. God is love. His love is as unchanging as he is. He doesn't change in his power. He doesn't change in his presence. He doesn't change in his knowledge. He does not change in his love. Romans 8 has said several times already, God loves you. Does that mean he loves you more when you do what's good? And he loves you less when you have a bad day? You see where I'm going? This is very important. This is the security we're talking about. It's not based on you. It's not based on what you've done. It's not based on how you maintain it. You didn't start it. You couldn't create it. You cannot maintain it. You cannot secure it. You cannot earn it. God loves you. The security rests in Him, not in you. That's what this chapter has said. It's Him. It's what He has done. Over and over and over, it's just been pointed out to us. This is His love for us. When I first came to realize that God's love for me uh, was before I even cried the first cry as a baby. Now, was that true? Was it before I acknowledged Jesus as my Savior? Was it, was it before I came to grips with the fact that He's my Lord? Did He love me before I even had a thought? Before I had even lived? Before I had ever responded to that love? Did He love me before this world was even made? I ask those questions because if you read Ephesians 1, the answer is yes. 
That's yes. That means I couldn't have done much about earning his love. I wasn't here to do it. I wasn't capable of doing anything to earn that kind of a love. He loved me and he predestined me to adoption as his son. His kind intention toward me provided redemption that I needed. It it provided forgiveness that I needed. It provided grace that I needed. And he lavished it upon me. He told me of his will and that I and all there is about me is included in his great plan to bring praise to his son when it's all done and said. And if that weren't enough to convince me of his love, he sent his Holy Spirit and sealed me forever in that relationship. He sealed me forever in a place where there's a heaven and I'll be there where there is a seat in heaven, and I will sit there, where there is an inheritance in heaven reserved for me, and I'll be there to receive it. That's all in Ephesians 1 and 2. It's right there in God's Word. And so it doesn't sound like Pastor Bob's being very self-centered this morning. That's what he said of all those who belong to him by faith in Jesus Christ. That's you too. That's your testimony. Just like it is mine. That's how long he's loved you. And that's what scripture has said over and over and over again. And so I wish I could say this for you, but I know I can say it for me. I am convinced. I am convinced. And that's the proclamation at the end of this beautiful chapter. Look again at those words in verse 38. I am convinced. You know, the very first time, and it probably was, the very first time that was ever written with a pen in the English tongue was about 1390. John Wycliffe was putting it down into English, and he says, I am certain. First time the words were probably written in English. About 120 years later, William Tyndale picks up his pen and he says, I am sure. And then 16, 1611, you know, that's where the King James Version was first uh, authorized. They wrote, I am persuaded. Then many translations since then. You got the NASB like I do or ESV or some others. You might have read the words, I am convinced this morning. And that's the words I'm using. You're reading the Amplified, and you carry a Bible twice as thick as everybody else's. Then it would say something like this. For I am persuaded beyond doubt, I am sure. They wanted to cover all of them just to make sure. You see, there are a lot of options, if you will, in the definition of the word, as the English can say, persuaded, convinced, uh, things of that nature. But there's power in the expression of that phrase. And that's the part I want to really emphasize for you this morning, because grammar is significant here. It's what we call a perfect passive indicative. And that sounds impressive, doesn't it? Perfect. Perfect. I like to insert the word as the adverb. I am perfectly convinced. 
Now, it's really not meant to be said that way. Matter of fact, the other way I say isn't the way it is either, and some scholars would just cringe when I say this, but perfect tense suggests permanence, too. And I like to say I am permanently convinced. Think of that for a while. I am permanently convinced. And being passive, that's the perfect way to say this verb, because it means I didn't do it. It was done to me. God did this to me. He made this possible. And being an indicative, as the verb is, that means it's a fact. It's not a potential. It's not a maybe. It's not a hope so. It's not a could be. It is. Right? You see the power alone just in the definition of the grammar. You see, you could say, I am persuaded. But that's it. I have been persuaded. That's literal. To say, I'm convinced, it says, I have been convinced. Something out there has been doing that to me. I have been made sure of. I have been won over. I believe, based on the evidence of God's securing love, I have been brought to believing in Him. I've been brought to that point. In other words, all the evidence has been mounted up so that you can finally say, that convinced me. That convinced me. Now, I, I, I look at the essence of this sentence. When I, I look at it, look at verse 38 and 39 for me. I'm just going to take the middle out for a minute and just use the word nothing. All right? Just to sum it up so you see the sentence that I want you to see today. For I am convinced that nothing, and jump to verse 39, will be able to separate us from the love of God. I am convinced that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. There are a lot of things that threaten. We're going to hold that up for a minute. But whatever they are, Paul makes a clear statement about them. They are not able. They do not have the power. They do not have the power in their operation. They do not have the power in their intention. They do not have the power in their fulfillment. In any aspect of what they are able to do, they won't be able to do anything to separate you from the love of God. It can do nothing to separate you from the love of God. Separation is a powerful word right here. It's a completed action, actually, in time idea. It's like something's been done, separated, and it can't go back. Illustration time. What do you call that? A banana. Some of you would say, it looks about right. Some of you would say, oh, no, it doesn't. It's way past what is right. I should take a vote, but I won't. Actually, they get sweeter the darker they get. You may need a spoon to eat it, but nevertheless, it's sweeter. Just don't know what you think of a banana. But here's the point. You take it and you cut it in half. Anybody want to stick it back together again? (laughs) 
got a volunteer. This would be interesting. Had ten, several volunteers. How, how do you do that? Duct tape. <laughs> duct tape. Crazy glue. We try all kinds. I mean, even if you did duct tape it, would you eat it after that? Probably not. Anyway, here's our point. Separated. What I just did to that banana cannot be undone. It's, it's been, a space has been put between it. And I cannot fix that. It has been separated. I'm going to put this thing away. Ooh, I found the biggest one in the kitchen down there. But this has been separated. Here's the picture of a word that's in front of you. Nothing, nothing will ever separate you from God. Nothing will ever put a place between you and His love for you. Nothing. There's nothing in between the believer and God's love for them. Can we mess up our fellowship? Oh, yeah. Can we change His love for us? No. This is why I'm bringing this point before you, and I keep stressing it as I can. This is a formidable list. This is a powerful list of things that go out of their way to scare a person to death. Really, they do. The items of persecution Paul had listed in verse 35. He talked about what will separate us from the love of Christ. There's that concept again. What would ever get between us and Christ that would pull us away and create a space between us and the love of Christ? He says, will, will tribulation do it? That's pretty intense. But it won't. How about distress? How about persecution? How about famine? How about nakedness? How about peril? Even a sword. Matter of fact, he went on to say, in the essence of it, is we're dying all day long. In the very next verse. That seems to be the thing that people point to and say, well, that's powerful enough to separate you from God. No, it isn't. Not only was it his last thought in verse 36, but it's first thought in verse number 38. Death cannot do it. Death does separate. It separates you from your body. It separates your soul from, from this body. We, we read that and we say, well, it's a pretty potent thing. Yes. But there are ten things named here that go with the word nor or neither and not. Each one adding to another, to another, to another. It's not that, and it's not that, and it's not that, and it's not that, and it's not that. And as the list is in front of us, just look at it for a moment. He says, neither death, which might to some people be the ultimate form of separation, but that can't separate you from God's love. Matter of fact, it's sometimes a vehicle to bring us right into his presence. Well, it is, really. Although I would prefer the rapture, to tell the truth. But to go into his presence, what joy that would be. What joy that would be. Life cannot separate you. You say, life? I thought life was good. Life is busy. Have you ever noticed? The activities of life, can they ever get between you and the love of God? 
say no. Good. Angels can't do it. Principalities can't do it. We'd start talking about angelic creatures of different natures, things like this. We, we, we talk about things present, what's standing before us right now, things to come, which are those things we expect to happen or anticipating, maybe even dreading. We say they're probable, they're possible, it can happen. We talk about powers, we talk about height, we talk about depth, measurement terms, like the depth of an ocean. Or some people say, well, maybe profound terms like the depth of a mystery, which we don't, we, we don't have the ability to understand something. It's too deep for us. Nor any other created thing. Matter of fact, this list, by the way, is a list of all created things. Every one of these items, by the way, has a creation point, because everything is created except for the creator. Time is created. Life is created. Death is created. Height is created. You are created. I'm created. And he gives you this list and says, and no other created thing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. This list includes things that we cannot control. Things bigger than us. Things more powerful than us. Things that have the advantage over us. Things of duration. Things of of time, things of degree, in distance, things that operate on spiritual levels, which we're not very good at that. Material things, immaterial things, things which bring us fear, things which have the ability to prevent us, or even twist us, or harm us, or even kill us. Things related to persecution. And for some reason, we take threats. Threats, um, of things very hard. We, we have degrees in our mind even of threats, don't we? And they tend to, to paralyze us to, if they're attached you know, to threats like this. In Esther, chapter number 5, Haman so much wanted to hang Mordecai. You know the story, maybe. Uh, Haman decided to build a gallows. Now, you only need two inches above their height. And succeed. He built one 75 feet high. Now, I think it's going to work just the same. But nevertheless, would that intimidate you if you had to choose between the two? How many would say, how take the 75 foot high gallows? I mean, that's, that's impressive. 75 feet high. That intimidates. I mean, I look at things like that and I think, yeah, we're intimidated by higher things. Larger things, deeper things. Construct the whole list of your phobias, whatever you want. The things that intimidate you, the things that cause you fear, the, the things that expose your weaknesses, the things that threaten your existence, certain things that occupy your mind that uh, in most cases prevents you from seeing or trusting or even knowing God's love for you at that time. Sometimes in the middle of the events, we see our own limitation, and we superimpose that upon our God. One of my favorite psalms is in Psalm 93. You could go over there. We'll go over there. We're a good Bible church. We turn pages. We go to Psalm 93. 
What, what do we see? This, this beautiful little, it's only five verses long, but boy does it pack it a message for us. He starts with sound theology. Here he is, just basking in the glory of who God is. The Lord. Oh, what is he doing? He reigns. Yes, he reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Yes. He is clothed and girded himself with strength. Yes. Indeed, the world is firmly established. You know, it's a great way to feel in the morning, isn't it? The world is firmly established. It will not be moved. And your throne, God, is established from on old. You are from everlasting. He starts his devotions really pure and beautiful here. Talking about how great God is. And then the floods start. That three-year-old wakes up. No, it's not that bad, is it? Your, your, your day begins and trouble starts. This is not exactly the picture here, but I want to show you what happens. He is basking in his view of who God is, and suddenly there is a tsunami coming right at him. The floods, oh Lord, the floods are mounted up, look Lord, through the waters. They have lifted up their voice. Here comes the pounding waves. They're just coming at me. And I'm overwhelmed. Now, he's not looking at God at the moment. Guess who he's looking at? The waters. What happened to his wonderful view? Well, that's where we are most of the time. We're sitting there saying, Look, water is coming. Who did we forget? The God. Notice the very next phrase. I love this. More than the sounds, verse 4, more than the sounds of that water, more than the mighty breakers of that sea, the Lord is still on high. The Lord on high is mighty. He didn't go away. He's above it. Many times our focus is here when it should just start drifting up there. Does it remind you of somebody in the New Testament who decided to start walking on the water one day? And what caught his attention? The waves. The Lord hadn't sunk. He was there the whole time. But that's exactly the way we are. If I could say it in a figurative way, that's exactly the way we think. We superimpose upon God because we, we, we think that, well, we're in the midst of this terrible time. God must be having a terrible time too. If we're limited. We're going to drown. God can't help me. God doesn't see me. God's busy somewhere. Oh, I need to get his attention. So you yell louder. He's there the whole time. His love is there the whole time. Isn't it? Has it diminished because there's a bigger wave in front of your face? Can he not hear you because the sound of that wave is greater than what you can project with your voice? You see, the psalmist had a neat picture for us because he started with the Lord, he saw the waves, he wrestled with the waves, he looked up higher, there was the Lord, and he says in verse 5, your testimonies are fully confirmed. You know what that says in Paul's words? I am convinced. I am convinced of his love for me. I just said that before you today because the verse you're looking at here in Romans chapter 8 says, I am convinced that nothing 
and I put that word in there on purpose, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I told you before, in my pride when I was younger, I used to think, but I could. I could separate myself from God's love if I chose to. And when I read that word, nor any other created thing, it just erased that whole side of what I was thinking. Because I'm a created thing. I like a God who's greater than my own thoughts, my own decisions, my own plans, my own will. I'm glad he's greater than all that. Here's what John Calvin's commentary said, and I just have a couple of thoughts, and I want to close, but I want to leave you with some, something here to think about deeply. John Calvin's commentary says, this whole passage is, a, is, is sublime in an extraordinary degree. The contrast is the greatest that can be conceived. Here is a Christian, all weakness in himself, despised and trampled underfoot by the world, triumphing over all existing and all possible and even impossible evils and oppositions, having only this as his stay and support, that the God who has loved him will never cease to love him, will keep him, will defend him, and then it's added by an editor, even if every created thing leagues against him and attempts his ruin. If all of this list happened at the same time, it's still not going to separate you from the love of God. So Paul writes to Timothy one day, and he says in 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know who I believe. And I am convinced that he is able. Now I always say that's theology in a nutshell, folks. He is able. He is able to keep what I have entrusted to him until that day. And then Paul writes to the Philippian believers and he says, I'm convinced, I'm persuaded, I am sure, I am certain, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, at the point we come to the end of this thought, I ask those three words, I ask concerning those three words, are those your three words? I am convinced. Not because Pastor Bob said so, but this is what God has said. You need to respond to it, folks. That's what Paul did. He made it personal. And we need to make that personal. I am convinced that he loves me like that. That's security. You see it? That's the security we've been talking about. Next week we're going to close it. The whole chapter with what made it all possible. Look at the last phrase of the chapter. It's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Heavenly Father, you are so amazing that you should love us like this. Wow, is that humbling. That's powerful. That's encouraging. That secures 
person like us. We stand before you today, Lord, knowing how unworthy we are, but how thankful we are that these are true words. And that's the essence of our praise as we come before you today. We come before you humbly. We come before you knowing very well our limitations, but knowing that you are a great God and knowing that you love us. I pray, Lord, for everyone in this room. If there's some among us who can't say those words, I am convinced. Continue to show them the evidence of your love. Shower it upon them. Help us all, for we all have to grow in this. Help us all to grow in our love as a response to you. Because we can only love because you first loved us. What a great text we've had to look at today. Thank you, Lord, for it. Now put it deep in our heart, a place where we can use it on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday and throughout the week, that we can use it for this month and next month and the month to follow, that that will be our banner that we walk under, the motto of our year, of our life, the statement of our heart, the assurance of our mind. I'm convinced of God's love for me. Do that work in each of our hearts, we pray, Lord, for we know that we need that. In Jesus' name, amen.